Well, good morning. It is Palm Sunday, which means we are kicking off Passion Week. Passion Week, which means that we are less than five days away from Jesus dying on a cross, and we are less than seven days away from Jesus removing death's sting by coming out of the grave, the only one to ever do that in history. And so this is an exciting week, and this is an exciting day, because this kicks that off. And I just want to encourage you as we get started this morning to never treat something that is traditionally celebrated as trivial just because it's traditional. Amen. I mean, this is an exciting day, Amen. because this is a day that God made a decision over 2,000 years ago to do something significant. And so never treat it trivial just because it's traditional. We can see it on our calendar, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter, Christmas, and we have these, these holidays, these things in the church that we celebrate, but they can so often, because we see them on the calendar, they can so often be treated trivially. But today is an exciting day. Don't let the familiarity of the holiday rob you of the wonder of it. See, I want to encourage you this morning because... Palm Sunday, I don't know if you know this, but Palm Sunday is not something that will ever go away. We see that on the other side of eternity with the privilege of John getting a revelation. I want you to take a look at Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. I don't know if you're like me, but you know, at some point through your life, you can come across Palm Sunday and you can see these palm branches and you're like, oh, it's just Palm Sunday. But this will be waved on the other side of death. It will be. And we see that in Revelation chapter 7. Look at this scripture. It's such an amazing scripture to portray what heaven looks like. It says, after these things, after these things, what are these things? The final tribulations, trials of the age. John looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count. From every nation. And all the tribes, all the people, and languages standing before the throne, before the Lamb. Do you know that God doesn't speak English? He created all the languages. And languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb and clothed in white robes. And what are they doing? They're waving palm branches. Because even in eternity, Palm Sunday doesn't leave the calendar. There are going to be Palm Sundays because it will be in eternity that we are able to fully understand the magnitude of these holidays that we can treat so trivially. Amen. Don't let it lose or don't lose your wonder for it. So why do we celebrate Palm Sunday? We celebrate Palm Sunday because there's another one coming. We celebrate Palm Sunday so that we can look forward to the Palm Sunday that will happen with expectation. As Pastor Rick closed, this is a week of anticipation and expectation. Can I get an amen? amen. In other words, we look back to remember what's coming. Right. We look back to remember what's coming. That's what Palm Sunday is all about. So I pray that this week leading up to Easter would be so different for everyone. This is a privilege to celebrate this week. It is so shallow for this week to culminate with candy and chocolate. This is such a significant 
week in the faith that we live and breathe. So don't, don't lose the wonder. I pray it's refreshing. I pray that you get excited. And most importantly, I pray this morning as I preach that you would catch a glimpse of Jesus that would just absolutely refresh your perspective for this season that has come upon us so quickly. So this morning, I want to take a look at two passages of Scripture, and I want to look at Luke chapter 9, and I want to take a look at Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 9 and Luke chapter 19. And so we're going to take a look at Luke chapter 9. If you got your Bibles, you can turn there. If you got your cell phones, you can turn them on. We're going to be reading from the New King James Version. Hallelujah. Going old school. Millie said, that's my Bible. That's all I read. If you want to be a solid Christian, I suggest you follow after Pastor Millie. Read what she reads. Ask her what, is she, what she reads. New King James Version. I love the language in this particular passage. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. When you're there, say, I'm there. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Let's reread that again. Came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. There's a lot in that passage of scripture. You could say a lot on that for a while. This is interesting because there was a moment in the life and ministry of Jesus where he specifically turned his attention toward Jerusalem. Much of Jesus' ministry and life had surrounded Jerusalem. He had taken trips to Jerusalem, but this was a defining moment where his focus was shifted specifically to Jerusalem. And so this morning, I want to talk on this phrase that he set his face to go to Jerusalem because this is what I want you to understand this morning. Before there was an Easter, before there was a Good Friday, and before there was a Palm Sunday, there was this moment where Jesus specifically, intentionally, shifted his focus to go to Jerusalem. All of the other events in this Passion Week stem from this moment. And so that's where we're going to go this morning. If you will bow your heads, close your eyes. Let's get a word of prayer. Jesus, I pray that you would continue to be with us, Lord. I pray that we would just soak in your presence this morning. Father, I pray that we would feel the weight of your glory. And God, I pray that as Hebrews says, we would fix our eyes on you, the author and the finisher of our faith. At the beginning of this magnificent week, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Luke chapter 9 is a power-packed chapter. Luke chapter 9 is a power-packed chapter. Let me give you a couple of examples why it's so power-packed. Number one, Luke chapter 9 kicks off with Jesus releasing his disciples to go and do the miracles and the works that he did. It then transitions from there to Herod the great son, Herod Antipas, uh, beheading John. 
Okay, so those two stories are pretty significant in the Gospels. But that's not where it ends. It goes on from there to Jesus' story of feeding the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. Then it goes to when Jesus has the conversation with Peter and, Peter, and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. Okay, now that's, that's a lot of meat for, a, for one chapter. Okay, but that's not where it stops. It goes again, it records the entire events of the transfiguration. It goes on from there to Jesus healed, healing a demon-possessed boy on the other side of the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember at the Mount of Transfiguration, um, Peter says, let's set up a temple and a tabernacle. Matter of fact, I don't know if, this is just hilarious to me. Peter was being so considerate of Jesus. He's like, you know, if you don't want to bunk with me, I'll build my own over here and you can just have your own tabernacle and that way we don't have to sleep in the same room together. But let's just stay up here. And I love the passage of scripture because literally it transitions from that moment, Jesus ignores Peter and it says, the next day they came down the mountain to the crowd. Do you understand that every time you have an encounter, it's not so that you can stay there, it's that, that you can actually come down from the mountaintop experience because there are people that are missing your encounter that need your encounter? Okay, so the whole idea of church hopping to follow the revival is missing the mark. All you're trying to do is build a tabernacle. Instead of being the tabernacle, when you come down from the mountain. And so we have this experience. And it says that Jesus at the bottom of the mountain heals a demon-possessed boy. It goes on from there. Jesus predicts his own death twice. See, and then, see this is a power-packed scripture. And then Jesus starts to speak some really harder truths. It's like Jesus is, John 1 says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. And we see here that Jesus kind of, uh, he kind of leaves the grace side and then starts to hone in on some more important truths. It's like he, he doesn't hold back anymore. Let me give you a couple of examples. Luke 23 through 26, listen to what Jesus says. If anyone wants to come after me, same chapter, he must what? Deny himself pick up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, this is the one who will save it. You, what, what, what is it worth to gain the whole world and lose your soul? Mm -hmm. Then it goes on in Luke. That's some heavy truth. Luke 9, 57. They were going on the road and someone comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, let me follow you. He says, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay my head. If you want to follow me, you're going to have to pick up your stuff and go. He says, let me go back and bury my father. He says, let the dead bury the dead. How many of you would like to have heard that from Jesus? <laughs> the, let the dead bury themselves. These are harder truths, more challenging truths. And what it implies to me is that there is a ramping up in the intensity of Jesus in the timeline of his ministry. There's no holding back. I, I don't have time to wait for you. Let me just keep it cut and dry. Let me tell you the truth. And if you want to follow me, come after me. These same things are here in Luke chapter 9. How many of you see that Luke chapter 9 is a choice 
chapter. I imagine if you were in like the Chinese church and you only could take bits and pieces of the Gospels, people would be fighting over Luke 9. There's a lot here, a lot that is said. It's meaty, it's choice, it's power-packed. And it's in this chapter that we see this moment with Jesus that it is so easy to overlook. It's in the middle of this chapter sandwiched among all these other events that we see this transitional moment where Jesus shifts his focus. And as verse 51 says, he steadfastly sets his face to go to Jerusalem. What, what does that even mean? What, is the, what are the implications of Jesus, the Son of God, setting his face? Isn't that a unique description of, like, what's going on? That's not, you know, it's not like I get up in the morning, make my coffee, and I look at my wife, and I'm like, all right, babe, it's time for me to set my face to Redeemer's. Like, this is not a common description. This is not a common thing that we use to describe the decision-making. What? is going on here. Now I want you to understand that this is a profound moment. This is a moment of shifting. It's a moment of transition. It's a mo moment of transformation into something new. It wasn't random and it wasn't spontaneous. Listen, this decision to set his face towards Jerusalem was a life-altering one for Jesus. And he knew it. And he knew it. The word steadfast here in the Greek means to firmly place. So Jesus was firmly placing his attention towards Jerusalem. Steadfast also means to set fast or to fixate. Have you ever been fixated on something? Anybody ever been fixated on something? It speaks of being hyper focused. My son, for his birthday, we got him a Lego set, and for five hours he was fixated on building it. Five hours. That's what being fixated is all about. It's this hyper focus. When you, listen, when you are fixated on something, it becomes your obsession. Whatever you are fixated on moves to the forefront of your mind and everything else moves to the background. It's that thing that's always in front of you. So what that means is that you can be present, but not present. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Some of you probably are present, but not present this morning. I would hope that you would be present, but just because you're here doesn't mean you're here. Some of you right now are thinking of the things you need to get done later on in the day. Some of you are mentally getting yourself ready for the week of work. Some of you are thinking about chores and grocery lists. <laughs> Who makes their grocery list so they can pick it up on the way home? Because this is American efficiency. I'm going to download the app and I'm going to go through and get the whole grocery list. That way I don't even have to shop. I got someone to shop, pull up in a parking lot, let them know I'm here. Man, I'm so productive. But don't miss the moment of what's going on. 
when Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, he became hyper-focused and Jerusalem became the object of his obsession. You know, when you're hyper-focused or you are fixated, hours can go by and you don't even realize it. There's actually, um, dopamine does that in your mind. When dopamine is released, you can lose track of time. And so hours go by and then someone, someone comes over, taps you on the shoulder, and they're like, like my wife, when I get fixated on something, hey, are you going to grill tonight? You've been cleaning your car for three hours. It was three hours? That's what fixated looks like. Become hyper-focused. So when Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, he became hyper-focused in Jerusalem became the object of his obsession. Now, when I look at this, I'm like, why at this moment is Jesus turning his focus towards Jerusalem? Why? It's simple. We see it in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, when we go back and look at it, listen to it, read it with me. It says, now it came to pass that when the time had come for him to be received up, Listen to me. Jesus set his face to go towards Jerusalem because the time for him to be received up had come. It was time. Three years of ministry. Every step that Jesus takes is calculated. Do you know that he crossed paths in his ministry, if he was worried about efficiency or being effective, he wouldn't have crossed paths so many times. But there was something about Jesus in other gospels that says he was moved with compassion. So compassion was his compass. And so he wasn't worried about efficiency. Wherever God told him to go, that's where he was going. He would cross and dissect and intersect. And if he was worried about being efficient, he would have never done it. But he went because every time was time. So this is no different when it says it was time, that's why he went, because it was time. I love how the Passion Translation paints this picture. It says in verse 51, Jesus let nothing distract him from departing for Jerusalem, because the time for him to be lifted up drew near, and he was full of passion to complete his mission there. Turn to somebody and say it was time. Listen, if Jesus does nothing of himself, if he only says what the Father says and he only does what the Father says, then this moment is no different. Jesus is doing his ministry and living his life, and all of a sudden he gets the Father's nod. It's time. I want you, I want you to understand something about this moment. Because if you go back to Luke chapter 9, Jesus had predicted his death twice. So he knew he was going to die. But I hope that you can understand the, the weight of this moment when it says that it was time for him to re- be received up. Because what you have to understand is that when Jesus fixed his attention on Jerusalem, Jerusalem meant something to Jesus that was different than everybody else. It meant that he was going to go into that city and he was never going to come out again until the mission was done. 
So you have Luke chapter 9, and then Luke chapter 19 is Palm Sunday. So you got 10 chapters of things that are taking place before Jesus, after he has set his focus to Jerusalem, actually arrives in Jerusalem. No wonder 10 chapters transpire, because if I know I'm going somewhere and I'm never getting out of it, unless I die, I'm going to take my time going there. God, I know I'm going to die. Can I just like take my time? Ten chapters transpire before Jesus actually arrives in Jerusalem. See, Jesus is doing his ministry. He gets the nod from the Father, and Jesus knew what that meant. Jesus knew what setting your face to go to Jerusalem was all about. This is a sobering moment for Jesus. He knew that when his Father said, it's time to set your face towards Jerusalem, there was no turning back. There was no turning back. I'm not, if it's me, I arrive in Jerusalem and I'm like, I got here. See y'all. What would you do if you knew that God told you to go to a city and you would never leave it? What would you do? You'd probably run the other direction. No, I'm good. Pastor Dwight, it would be a, to a totally different level. If God told you specifically, you're going to Burundi and you'll never fly home. You're going to die on this trip. That'd be something different, wouldn't it? Sue, you're going into Center Hope and I love you, but you're never leaving. You're dying there. See, Rick, you're coming to the church, but you're never going back home. This is what Jesus knew, and yet he still went. I'm, I, I know I'm never coming back. This is the weight of the moment. See, if he was the spotless and blameless lamb, then he literally is getting himself caught in the, in the thicket. I am going into the lion's den on purpose to get devoured. This was the moment. See, this moment echoes Galatians 4 when it says, but when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that he might receive the adoption as sons and daughters. It was time, and so Jesus begins to make his ascent to, towards Jerusalem. It's always, listen, when, no matter where you are in the world, Jerusalem is always an ascent. It's always an ascent, especially in the Jewish mind. If you were Jewish, Jerusalem was always an ascent. You could be on top of Mount Everest, and if the next place you were going from Mount Everest was Jerusalem, you would literally say, I'm going up to Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem literally embodied the pinnacle of the human experience. This is where the God who created the galaxies came to be with man. It was, it was the pinnacle. There's, there's nowhere else you can go. If you want to know 
what the highest experience in humanity is, you go up to Jerusalem because that's where God intermingles with man. This is what Jerusalem embodies. And in the Jewish mind, everything is always an ascent. So Jesus goes on this ascent up to Jerusalem. Matter of fact, it's so funny because there's, there's a, a Mount of Olives that actually is higher than Jerusalem. And so it's a descent physically, but literally it's an ascension. And so here's Jesus. Pinnacle of the human experience is for man to walk with God, dwell with God, and live with God. And Jerusalem embodied that. And so from Luke 9 to Luke 19, we see this long, slow journey up to Jerusalem. And in Luke 19, we see the arrival of Jesus, which is what we are celebrating today, which is Palm Sunday, the story that is so familiar with us. It goes on to say, which Luke 19 is the, the um, it is the fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion, shout in triumph, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus is riding on a donkey, which is a beast of burden. Why didn't he choose a horse? He chose a beast of burden because he was carrying the burden of the world on his shoulders, and he needed an animal that represented and was symbolizing the weight he was carrying. So he picks a donkey because he's carrying a burden. And this animal knows what it's like to carry a burden. And so he enters into Jerusalem because he, he, he knows that it's time. And it's fanfare. It's commotion. Like Palm Sunday. Listen, Palm Sunday is wild. Fanfare, commotion, gospel of Matthew, actually Matthew says that the whole city was in an uproar. The whole city. Even people that didn't even believe Jesus was Messiah, are, they're, they're showing up. <laughs> it, it, have you ever been in an, in an environment where a lot of people are, are, are there and then something happens and you just see this wave of people running to it? This was Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. People are like, I don't even know what's going on, but I'm not going to miss out. It's a fanfare. It's a celebration. People, people are climbing trees and hacking off branches. Can you imagine the people wherever Jesus arrived? Can you imagine the people like, what are you doing in my tree, bro? Don't cut my branch. Master said, I need it. How many chopped off branches on the road were there? People breaking off branches. See, for me, I would have like, I would have went up and like dunked on a branch and ripped it off. Kobe. All these branches, fanfare, people are waving these branches. People are taking off. It's a big game of basketball shirts and skins. You got people taking off shirts, laying them on. Making an impromptu red carpet. It was a scene. People are celebrating, dancing, clapping, shouting, yelling. It was a commotion. This is one of those moments that if there would have been a stampede, somebody probably would have died because of what's going on. People are pushing through the crowd just to see this Messiah on a donkey arriving in Jerusalem. And everybody's pumped because Jesus is here. The Messiah is here. You know what he's going to do? He's going to eradicate us of Roman rule. People, these Jews are like, I hate Pilate. I hate these Roman legions. I can't wait for, where, 
How is he going to assemble the army? What is he, what is he going to do when he gets into Jerusalem? Because he's, he's, he's from the Mount of Olives. It says he goes from Jericho through Bethany from the Mount of Olives. And he descends, which is an ascension, into Jerusalem. And what is he going to do when he actually gets through the gate? See, I w- if I would have been one of those zealots, that would have been a provoker. I would have been like, Jesus, what are you going to do next? How, how are you going to take care of this Roman occupation? Where, where do we go if we want to be in your army, Jesus? Like, how is this? Man, I can't wait for him to go in and just kick Pilate's door down and say, you're out. Can't wait for Jesus to show up. Where are the throne of David at, y'all? My time to kick back. I'm going to have all the angels dispatched. They're just going to kill the whole Roman army. And then you have this really... This moment with Jesus that doesn't match the experience. In Luke 19, Jesus finally arrives and it says that, that he, he, he goes into Jerusalem. And in Luke 19, verse 41, now what you have to understand is this. Is in verse 41, it says when he approached Jerusalem, what did he do? He wasn't celebrating. It says he sold the city and he wept over it. Now, if I'm championing Jesus and then I see him start to wail, I'm like, what? Why is he crying? What's his problem? He's getting praised and celebrated. What? This wasn't a silent cry. The Greek word literally here means that he was wailing. Wailing out loud. It was a groan. It would have been recognizable. It probably would have been one of those things that he would have been crying so hard that everybody that was cheering was like, shh. What? This is not really what I thought was going to happen. So here's Jesus, and I want you to see what he says in verse 41. He saw the city, and he wept over it. And listen to what happens in verse 42, saying out loud, if you, Jerusalem, had known this day the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. See, this Messiah, this victorious king, the one who's going to liberate Jerusalem is wailing out loud. And if I could have the keyboard players and the worship team come forward. Why was Jesus wailing out loud? Why was Jesus wailing out loud? Two reasons. He was wailing out loud because of what had become of Jerusalem. Because of what had become. Listen to me, Zechariah 2.8 says that God calls Jerusalem the apple of his eye, but that's not what Jesus saw. Jesus saw the pinnacle city of humanity as a place of corruption, turmoil, bondage, sin, wickedness, religiosity, and pain. That's what Jesus arrived to in Jerusalem. See, this pinnacle moment, this pinnacle place was not a pinnacle anymore. Jerusalem was supposed to be a city of peace, 
But there was no peace. That's why it goes on to say in 42, when he says, if you had known in this day, even you the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. In other words, you have no idea what needs to happen for Jerusalem, the city of peace, to actually live up to its name. You don't know what needs to take place. For Jerusalem to be the city of peace required the prince of peace to come and die and have every ounce of his blood shed. That's why he's crying. He's looking at this glorious city where God's supposed to meet with man and he's weeping over the condition of it. You have no idea what needs to happen for peace to actually come to this city. And then next, secondly, Jesus is weeping because of what is to come in Jerusalem. See, we see the humanity of, G G of Jesus in weeping. He's weeping because he knows that when he turned his face to go to Jerusalem, there would be no turning back until he would volunteer to have nails go through his hands and feet, be beaten, bruised, and broken, and shed every ounce of his blood. So he's weeping not only because of what had become of Jerusalem, but he's weeping because of what is to come in Jerusalem. How much anxiety would you live with on a day-to-day -day basis, knowing five days from your arrival, you're going to go through that amount of pain? And this is where Jesus is at. He's weeping. Because what you have to understand this morning was that Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the pro processional of praise meant something entirely different to Jesus. What they saw as a triumphal entry into Jerusalem was Jesus' death march. That's what it was. But God would have it no other way. And so in Luke chapter 9, we saw that he looks down upon his son and he says, it's time to steer your attention to go to Jerusalem. Can't go anywhere else, Jesus. This is it. So Jesus goes towards Jerusalem. See, what you have to understand is that when it says that Jesus was setting his face towards Jerusalem, he wasn't just setting his face towards Jerusalem. He was setting his face towards you and I. Jerusalem Jerusalem was us. Because Jesus would not die outside of Jerusalem. So when God says, set your face to go there, it means set your face, turn your face towards every person that you are going to die for. Listen, Jerusalem, Jesus turning toward Jerusalem was God turning toward you and I. And here's all of the irony in that. For God to ultimately turn toward sinful humanity, Jesus would have to endure his own father turning away from him in the most excruciating moment of his life. God, in other words, God's saying, it's either you that I set my face towards or it's them.
And we see this in Matthew chapter 25 where Jesus is in his most excruciating moment. He's hanging on the cross. He's been beaten, all of that. And what does he say? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Greek word is literally, why have you turned away from me? In this moment, Jesus can't see his father's face anymore. Why? Because in putting his own son on the cross, he had to turn away from him so that he could turn towards us. And this is what's going on. God had to turn away from his own son so that he could turn towards you. That's what turning towards Jerusalem is all about. And this is one of the reasons why Jesus was wailing. There's Luke 42. If you had known in this day, even you, the things that will make for peace, peace had to be made. And that's what Jesus is saying. If you only knew what was to happen this week for peace to be made between God and man for your remission. What is remission? It is the forgiveness or cancellation of your sin. If you only, the price that had to be paid for that debt to be settled. See, he set his face towards Jerusalem to settle that debt. If you only knew what has to happen this week for peace to be made between God and man for your reconciliation. What's reconciliation? It is the restoration of a friendship between God and man. That's what he was making. He set his face towards Jerusalem to restore humanity's friendship with God. If you only knew what was to happen this week for peace to be made between God and man for your redemption to happen, for a life freed from the power of sin to be restored. Listen to me this morning. He set his face towards Jerusalem to free people from the bondage of sin. This is the peace that had to be made in Jerusalem that Jesus talked about in verse 42. If you only knew what needed to happen for peace to be made. And that peace was made five days from now on what we call Good Friday. The only reason why we call it Good Friday is because it was a God Friday. Because even Jesus said, there is no one good but God. It is Good Friday because it was a God Friday, y'all. See, there's no peace. This is interesting because there's no peace given without Jesus setting his face towards you and I. It's a moment where Jesus turned towards us. He turned towards Jerusalem to give peace and make peace between God and man. And there's something interesting about peace being connected to wherever God has his face set. For God told Moses to tell his priests to pray a specific prayer over the people of Israel. I want you to hear this in Numbers chapter 6, verse 22 and 27. And let me give you the context. In the Old Testament... In the transition from Egypt to the promised land, who was the only person that was allowed to see God face to face? Moses. And Moses is accustomed to, it says in Exodus 33, 11, that he had conversations with God face to face. But now they are in transition to the promised land. And number six, God says to Moses, Harold, you're not the only one that gets to see my face. Because it was an indication that he was not going to allow 
just a select group of people to see him face to face. So God says in number six, he says this to Moses. Once again, Moses knows what his face looks like. He says this to him. He says, instruct the priests to pray this blessing over all of Israel. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and to his sons. Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance. Jesus set his face up to Jerusalem and give you peace. There's a connection between wherever God sets his face, that's where peace is given. And so here in Luke 9, the Father says, you only do what I tell you to do, you only say what I tell you to say. It's time for you to set your face towards Jerusalem, the city of peace that doesn't have any peace, so that your face can shine upon them and it can be given peace. Moses, you're not the only one that I want. I want to see my face. See, Moses was the only one that saw God face to face. Yet God tells Moses to tell the priest to pray that his encounter with God would become everyone's encounter with God. This is what Palm Sunday is about. It's about the arrival of, of the king of the universe coming so that he could shine his face on humanity and give them peace and bless them and keep them. This is what it was all about. And I want you to listen to verse 27. God tells Moses to tell the priest to pray this. Lord, bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lord, lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. In verse 27, so they shall, this is the priest, through the prayer, so they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and I then will bless them. Jesus was the answer to the prayer of the priests in Numbers chapter 6. And let me tell you, when Jesus turned his face towards Jerusalem, God was turning his face towards you to bless you and to keep you, to make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. When the Lord lifted up his countenance toward Jerusalem, he was lifting up his countenance on you to give you peace with God. And watch what it says in Numbers uh, 6. It says, and the priests are to pray this prayer so they will invoke my name on the sons of Israel and I then will bless them. You know what invoke means? Invoke literally means the act of directing something towards something else. So God is saying, I want my face to not just shine on Moses. I want my face to be shined on humanity. So you are to pray. And when you pray, you will turn me towards them. See, what was God saying? He was saying to Moses, command my priest to pray this prayer over my, my people. And there will come a time where I will send my name to my people and he will be turned towards them to bless them and keep them and make his face and his countenance come upon them that they would have peace. This is the arrival of, Jerus of Jesus into Jerusalem. So that you could experience God turning his face towards you because there's power. There's a song that I've been worshiping to that says this. With just one look, 
everything changes. With just one look, everything changes. If you see Jesus face to face, I'm telling you, you're never the same. You're never the same. And the song goes on to say this. On Calvary, you looked at me. On Calvary, you looked at me. Jesus was arriving into Jerusalem so that his face could shine on humanity and his presence and his transformational power would not just be for a selected group of people, but for everybody. There's something that happens when you see his face. And my prayer this week is that at the beginning of this Passion Week, before Good Friday, that you would see his face because when you see his face, everything changes. You're captivated. You will never be the same. You will never be the same when God shines his face on you. That's what Palm Sunday is all about. It's about God saying, it's time for you to set your face toward humanity so that they can see you. My prayer this morning is that this week you would turn towards Jesus. Fix your eyes on him and get a fresh revelation of who he is. Will everyone stand with me? We're going to sing a song as we close out. And the song is called The Blessing. The Blessing. This song literally is this priestly prayer. Lord, bless me and keep me. May your face shine upon you, upon me. Be gracious towards me. Give me peace. My prayer is that as we sing this song, you would experience the presence of God and that what is traditional would not be trivial. That you would experience God fresh at the beginning of this Passion Week. So I'm just going to pray, and then we're just going to worship the Lord. Father, we come before you, Lord. We thank you. We thank you, God, that long before Palm Sunday, there was this moment where you told your son to set his face towards Jerusalem. Father, that grace would be poured out, that peace would be poured out. Father, that peace would be made between God and man. And Father, that we would experience the blessing that comes from, Father, you looking at us, God. Lord, I pray that we would encounter your presence, Lord, in this powerful week in our faith, God. And, Father, that we would never be the same. We would never be the same. With just one look, God, everything changes. In Jesus' name. Come on, let's worship God this morning.